Let's pray together one more time. Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we know that as we gather here as your people, as your church, Lord, we know that we are gathering around the sacred text, that we are gathering around the sacred truth of your word, and your desire is for it to have its full effect in our lives, its full effect in our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray, open us up, help us not to be guarded Open ourselves up to what your word may have to say to us, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to believe. Destroy the works of the devil. Guard our minds, Lord. Protect our hearts, Lord. Cause us to be filled with joy, rejoicing to the point of overflowing, God. I pray for all your people today that they would all be ministered to, as I know your word has a prophetic power to individually apply itself by the power of your spirit, Lord, to each of our lives. And so, Father, I, I, I stand here knowing the power that you uh, exhibit in your word. And so, Father, I ask, would you move among us now and bless us as we look at this text? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> we come to a portion now in the book of Hebrews where the author is going to give us a dire example of unbelief. You remember how Hebrews started out? Hebrews started out unapologetically, if you turn to chapter 1 with me, unapologetically making a grand claim, and that is that God was speaking. You see that? God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and many ways, watch this, in these last days has spoken. And he says he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world how can we stop reading? He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that is what God is speaking. The problem is, is that this church to whom the author is writing is being tempted away from believing that message. Therefore, the author of Hebrews brings in this dire warning of those who have failed to listen and to take heed to the messages of God in the past. Therefore, he says, verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, that's the message, do not harden your hearts. And so, what Hebrews is saying is that a redemptive message has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ that is superior, as we've already seen, superior, supreme, superlative, that it is so uh, significant and so important that if you do not believe this message, then you stand to lose everything. And that is what Hebrews is doing here. He is giving us, if you would, lessons of redemptive history for us to learn from. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that what happened to Israel in the past, that 75% uh, of your book over here in the Bible, 
this big chunk of Scripture that is so often neglected by Christians today, that that represents redemptive lessons for us to learn. What happened to Israel in the past happened to them as an example for us so that we would not follow in the same error, in the same folly as they did at many times. And so the author of Hebrews is going to bring Psalm 95 to bear. And that's what this quotation is. It is a quotation from Psalm 95. And how does the chapter work there for the chapter is working this way, if I can give us a structure of chapter 3 and chapter 4, because this really goes together. What we have here is a series of warnings and then a series of promise. And it's all about how a person enters God's rest. Look at verse 11. I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So that the word rest or the concept of rest has taken upon itself great theological and I would say typological meaning. In other words, the Old Testament rest, entering into the land of Canaan, entering and inheriting the promised land is now a type for us of something greater, of a greater reality, a reality that is always found in Christ. Like all of God's other shadows and types, they are all realized in Christ. And so this portion here, verses 7 through 11, really stand as a stark contrast to what we looked at last week. Go back up to verse 6 because verse 6 left us with this great admonition. Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. That is, the people of God is his house. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And so verse 7 brings in a contrast. Verse 6, firm till the end. Hold fast. Do not waver. Verse 7, this is what happens when you waver. That's what verse 7 is doing. So he gives us different lessons here that we can learn. And let me give you the first one. The first one is that we need to listen or hearing the importance of hearing God's redemptive voice. God's redemptive voice. This phrase here, today, it, today if you hear his voice, this is what the Holy Spirit is speaking. And he is speaking this to the future. Back up to verse 5 with me in chapter 3. You remember that because of what the author has already said in verse 5. Moses was a testimony of things which were to be spoken later. And then here we are with what is being spoken, namely God's voice and what he is saying through his son, Jesus. So really it stands two typological things. First, Moses serves a prophetic purpose. Secondly, these things refer to that which God would speak later. And at the time when this happened, we, we look at, in, in a sense, stages of fulfillment. That Psalm 95 that the author is quoting was, if you would, the first stage. That the, the, the audience of the psalmist was learning this lesson when it was spoken there. But now, as it were, there is a final stage of fulfillment. There is a final message, a final voice. There is a final word. And so... Number one, the importance of hearing God's redemptive 
voice. We must listen to what is spoken because what God has spoken has to do with our salvation. And you'll find that in Psalm 78, for example. But the background of this provocation is Psalm 95. And if you turn to Psalm 95, what you learn from Psalm 95 in the context of Psalm 95 is also interesting. Because in Psalm 95, the people were to praise God for his salvation. And you remember what Hebrews said already in chapter 2. How will we escape, escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So Psalm 95 is saying God is to be praised because of the salvation that he has brought. Verse 1, God is also to be thanked above all gods. He alone is God. Verses 2 and 3. Also, it shows his total sovereignty over creation. And that fits very nicely with the context of Hebrews chapter 2 that we've already looked at. And also, it is a total call, a total call to submission to what God has done in shepherding his people and bringing them out of Egypt through the Exodus, verses 6 and 7. But the Holy Spirit, according to the author, is making a Christological connection here. And the connection is that this voice that the children of Israel failed to listen to is now being spoken fresh to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now notice the author is saying, the Holy Spirit says. Turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Just so you see how Christological the Trinity is. You know what the Bible is? The Bible is a a Christ-centered book written by the triune God of Scripture. The Bible shows us the, the, the Trinitarian Christ-centeredness of God. It's an amazing concept. I think I ripped that off from J.I. Packer. It's not original. I agree with John Piper. I've never had an original thought in my life. We stand on the shoulders of giants, and that's okay because we don't want to think of anything new to say up here. We want to say what has already been said. We want to repeat the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 10, we see the same phenomenon with the Spirit of God speaking and indicating these exact things. Namely, that what Psalm 95 is talking about, the Holy Spirit would reiterate these things about Jesus Christ. And this is what he says in 1 Peter 1.10. As to this salvation, that is a common salvation, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, this common salvation that we have, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, that's amazing in itself, the prophets were prophesying of the grace that would come to you, that is the New Covenant Christian, they made careful searches and inquiries, just fascinating, I get a picture of this old prophet sitting in a, sitting in a, a, a room somewhere, kind of like my office, and <laughs> surrounded by manuscripts and scrolls and carefully searching and making inquiries into God's law and seeking to find Christ. Look, it says it right here. Seeking to know what person or time. Watch this phrase. The Spirit of Christ. That's a phenomenal phrase. The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted, that is the Spirit predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 
That's remarkable. That is to say, the spirit of Jesus Christ was in the prophets predicting the things that would happen concerning Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's just remarkable. The whole, the whole book is wired in a Christ-centered way, the whole Bible. Now, if we don't hear what God has done through Jesus Christ, the things that the Spirit spoke long ago, long ago about Christ, then we are in danger of failing to enter God's rest. Not the rest of Canaan. Again, it's not the promised land anymore. We're talking about heaven, the heavenly Canaan, the new Jerusalem, right? Our heavenly abode, our heavenly residence, the world to come. In Hebrews, therefore, this voice and this today has prophetic relevance for our lives right now. And we stand, if you would, think of yourself as a new and final uh, Exodus generation who are promised a greater land, right, with greater promises, the book of Hebrews says, and if we fail to believe in those promises, we will fail to enter God's rest. Look at, uh, again, Hebrews thir uh, chapter 3, beginning of verse 13. Same idea. If we do not become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, that is. In verse 13, he says, But be, encourage one another day after day. Watch this. As long as it is still called, and then the quote, Today. Now, that's a quote saying, since you are in the age where the today of Psalm 95 still applies to you right now, meaning this today, that, remember, that's the day when God's voice went out and he talked about promises and salvation and redemption. So encourage one another every single day because there is still a rest to go into. And then the warning, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's kind of a summary of verses 7 through 11, that phrase, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's exactly what verses 7 through 11 is really saying. And so today at dinner, after church, what was Pastor Emilio going on and on and on about, right? Well, just remember, well, what Pastor Emilio was talking about was that we should encourage one another as long as it's still called today so that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's it. That's the commentary on the whole sermon. And that's what we need to do every single day. Verse 14 goes on, For we have become partakers of Christ if... And then you see how he rounds out. Verse 6 and now verse 14. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. So the book of Hebrews is all about staying the course, running the race, holding the faith, keeping faith, keeping the assurance, your confidence, your confession, holding on to these things. And we looked, about, we looked at this last week with the idea there of our confidence being that which we dogmatically are convicted about. There's just certain things that we cannot compromise on. There's just certain things that we simply uh, we, we can't concede at any point, ever, ever, ever. It doesn't matter what stage you're on. If you're on the news, if you're, on, you know, if you're a famous evangelical minister and you get to appear you know, on CNN or whatever, 
and you are asked a direct question about an essential doctrine of the Christian faith, you do not have the right to compromise. You have to testify. You have to hold. That's what the confidence is talking about. It's talking about our confession of faith. So first, we need to hear God's redemptive voice. But secondly, of course, we need to heed God's redemptive warning. And that is really what this is about. Look at verse 8 back at Hebrews 3. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tried me by testing me, and they saw my works for 40 years, for 40 years. So instead of the children of Israel responding with resignation, they responded with provocation. And what follows in chapter 3 and chapter 4 really is an exposition of Psalm 95. Are you listening? Are you hearing? Chapter 3, chapter 4 is really an exposition of Psalm 95. That's so encouraging to me when I read the Psalms to know that I can go to the Psalms and I can open it up and I can expound the Psalm to my own life right now and have direct application to me in the new covenant. And uh, remember that the book of Hebrews is... The consensus of all the commentators and the scholars out there is that the book of Hebrews is an ancient sermon. (laughs) It's like it's an ancient sermon. They would have picked this book up, and it wasn't like one of the letters of Paul where opening salutation, right, and closing greeting and all of that. That reads like a letter, like it should be. But the book of Hebrews, the main majority of it is expository. It is an admonition. It says that about itself. At the end of the book, it says this is a word of encouragement or a word of exhortation. That word is synonymous with this is what's to be preached. This is what's to be, uh, this is like an encouragement that goes, goes forth in the church. And um, when you look at the nature of the, the, the early church's sermon here, uh, I don't see a bunch of joking around and laughing and Harley's on stage and pastors swinging from the rafters. I see a, a, a pastor that is blood earnest. I see a pastor that is deadly serious about the things of eternity who is not playing games and is not joking around because life is serious. And whoever this pastor was, he wasn't there to play games. He wasn't there to amuse people. He was there to give them the truth, the truth. And so, again, Chapter 3, chapter 4, an exposition of Psalm 95. But yet, when we come to this phrase, look at, look at the chapters with me, 3 and 4, right? You come to verse 15, and what do you have? A repetition of what verse? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Zeroing in on that portion of the psalm. And again, look at chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Again, he fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after a long time, just as he uh, has been said before, just as as it has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So what I'm saying is that this comes to the essence of what the psalm is all about, hearing the voice and hardening the heart. This is the redemptive warning. The redemptive warning is that In the voice of God, in the word of God, you are hearing about the salvation of God. And if you harden your heart, you will not get that salvation. 
It's that simple. Two things I want to point out here from the example that we see from this from this, these two verses here, verses 13, or excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 here. Number one, do not follow your heart. Follow God's word. You see that? And I take that from verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. The heart is where we have to begin when we talk about any apostasy, because that is where apostasy begins, is in the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Out of the heart flow the issues of life. If you don't guard your heart, then the issues of life will follow suit. Unbelief is a heart issue. You can, you can perform all the external duties. You could go to church, you can study your Bible, you could attend the men's group, the women's study, you can go to the prayer meeting, you can, you can sing on the stage, you can, do, you can preach the Bible, but if your heart is hardened, where you no longer are responsive to God's word, then apostasy can creep in. I remember one of my heroes, Artaxerdia, preaching these passages, and I remember him having to come back up on stage the following week and say, now, I know that some of you, based on the things that I have said uh, in previous sermons, some of you have raised the concern that I'm preaching that you can lose your salvation. <laughs> the he Hebrews is classic for that, for thinking that what Hebrews is teaching is that a person can go from saving faith to losing their faith and losing their salvation. That is not what the book of Hebrews is teaching at all. Um, you'll have to stay tuned to, for me to show you that <laughs> uh, because that will send us in a rabbit trail that I'll be on for an hour and we don't have that much time. But no, Hebrews is not teaching that you can apostatize in the sense of losing your salvation. Remember that the Bible teaches that a person that apostatizes, according to 1 John 2, never had salvation in the first place. So that's important to keep that tension in mind. However, the warning for Calvinists is the same as Arminians. Guard your heart. Be on guard against unbelief. Put a watch over your heart. Out of your heart are going to flow the issues of life. Don't harden your heart. Don't fail to hear and to heed God's voice. We have to feel the power of the warning because this is how God is going to preserve us and protect us until the end. He uses means to get us there. And the means of getting us there is these, these redemptive warnings that he's using here. Now, to harden the heart is an interesting phrase. The word to, to harden your heart literally speaks of a, of a person's stubborn refusal in the Bible, a stubborn, stiff neck refusal to heed God's word and to obey God's will. That's what it's referring to. In Acts chapter 19, verse 9, after the preaching of the apostles, the Jews hardened their hearts. In Romans chapter 9, verse 18, it's also used of God's ability to harden the heart, in, the, in that case of Pharaoh. And it is comparable all over the Old Testament to the phrases that speak about stiffening your neck. Let me give you just a couple 
of passages. And while I'm quoting this, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. The reason I have you turn there is to show you the principle that even in the Old Testament, the prophets would make the people remember the hardening of the heart that took place after the Exodus as a sort of a, sort of a paradigm, as a model, right? As the way that we can reflect on our own lives so that we don't follow in the same error. Nehemiah chapter 9. But let me read to you Jeremiah 7, 26. They did not listen to me. You see that? They didn't hear God's redemptive voice. They didn't incline their ear to me. They stiffened their neck, and they did more evil than their fathers. Deuteronomy 9, 7. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Talking about the same thing that Psalm 95 is talking about. From the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been a rebellious people against the Lord. Now, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 16. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. Notice the, notice the element of arrogance, Right? Apostasy is arrogance. Apostasy involves by necessity. It must include the pride of the heart to, to come to a settled conviction that you know better than God. There is an, there is an arrogance, a pride, a lifting, of the, a lifting of the hand, a lifting of the fist to God to say that you are wiser than God. It's a dreadful thing. This is stubborn condition of man. It says that. They became stubborn and they wouldn't listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them so that they became stubborn and appointed a leader that would to return to their slavery in Egypt. Notice that. They appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. That is what happens. In apostasy, you will be identified with someone else. You will follow someone. And if you don't follow God, you're going to follow the course of the air of this world. Somewhere along the line, you will identify with some group in something. People don't apostatize just to go and be in a deserted island somewhere. People apostatize and they join back with the world. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. This is God's covenant faithfulness to his people. Many of them, even though they apostatized, God still redeemed. He redeemed a remnant. So don't follow your heart. Follow God's word, right? Secondly, do not follow the fathers who ignored God's works. That's the second thing, and that's what Nehemiah is talking about. They did not remember your wondrous deeds, your wondrous deeds. Listen to, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 3, it says there, In the day of trial, in the wilderness, in the wilderness represents the exodus period of time. The generation that left Egypt and wandered in the desert, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they were obstinate. They were rebellious. Now, this is really interesting. Notice the terms that are used here when it says, they provoked me, and then 
in the day of trial. I want you to focus on the word provoke and in the day uh, and in the word trial. Because these words, the author is following the Septuagint. Now follow closely because this is has this practical importance for you, for me. Because the Hebrew text has the words Meribah and Massah, which represent the places where this rebellion and this trial took place. But in the Greek Septuagint, the authors of the Septuagint preserved not the locations, but they preserved the attitudes. So they didn't try to translate Meribah and Massah. They translated or they brought over the attitudes associated with those Hebrew words, which are rebellion, which is Meribah, which is testing or temptation, Masa, trial. So what that means is that for the author of Hebrews, more important than the geographical location where these things took place is what took place there, namely the rebellion and the testing of God, the rebellion of God's people and the testing of God. That is good news for us because that means that these things are not time-locked. They are timeless. These attitudes, this is why he can apply it to us. So we need to be careful, of course, that in applying all of these things, we don't immediately fly to the application of, well, just like the people of Israel grumbled and complained in the wilderness, then I need to be careful that I don't grumble and complain, let's say, at work or in the marriage or with the finances or whatever, with the family. I need to be careful that I don't have a complaining spirit the way they, that, that they did. Now, two things are true here. What happened to Israel has personal uh, relevance for us so that it has that practical application. There's no question about it. But the way that Hebrews is talking here is that the primary application of this text doesn't have to do with how you act at work. It has to do with whether or not you believe the gospel. It's redemptive in nature. In other words, it's showing you that these, for 40 years, these people saw the marvelous things that God did and they failed to believe in the gospel. They fail to believe in God's promises. And I'm not saying reflect back on your own life. Look at the faithful things that God did in your life and how he provided a paycheck and how he gave you a home and he gave you a spouse and he gave you a family. That's great and that's true. But here in Hebrews, it is pointing to something much greater. It is saying, look at what God did in Jesus Christ. And then if you fail to listen to that, you will not enter God's rest. That's the way that it's functioning. And the psalmist, so turn with me to Psalm 78, just so that I can show you how that, for the authors of Scripture, and especially even in the Old Testament, when they reflect on all these things, how do they go from the historical events to salvation, right? Okay, so we understand Meribah, Masa. we know what happened at those places, that's when the children of Israel rebelled because they didn't have water and God had to strike the rock and right, the, he made water to come out of the rock and then he fed them with manna and then he fed them meat and then he provided all these miraculous things and the exodus and the plagues and everything. But you see, for the psalmist, they understood 
that these events were just little symbols of a greater redemption. Psalm 78, verse 18. In their heart, they put God to the test, so same context, by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God, and they said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock, so the waters gushed out, and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? It's almost like, but can he really give bread? Will he provide meat for this people? Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. And a fire was kindled against Jacob, and the anger also mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. So what were the application to us is this, that these redemptive events, these redemptive works should point us to a greater redemption. Not just materialistic things. Not just that God can provide us a paycheck. God can provide us salvation through Christ. And so let me move to my third point. Not only do we need to hear God's redemptive voice, we need to hear or we need to heed his redemptive warning in the fathers, but also we need need to hope in God's redemptive purpose. Now, you might think I'm crazy, but look at verse 10. Because you're going to be like, where is hope? (laughs) Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And you might say, well, that is absolutely hopeless. (laughs) There's no hope in that. Uh, There is hope because Later on, when he reiterates all of this, it opens up another way. In other words, where the condemnation of one generation results in the redemption of another. So look at chapter 4 with me, verse 9. Chapter 4 with me, verse 9. Here is hope. Got to keep reading, right? A lot of times you want answers to your biblical questions. Keep reading. So, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You see that? But verse 11 says, no rest. They had no rest. They didn't enter the rest. They were judged. It says in the psalm that he laid them low. One generation was executed for their unbelief. But just like in the Exodus, another generation inherited the land. Same thing for us. All of this points to the fact that God, even though he loathed one generation, that's what it says, therefore I was angry with this generation. The Hebrew word, when you go back to the psalm, the Hebrew word is kot, which means he was disgusted. He loathed them, the NASB translates it. And why did he loathe them? He was disgusted with their unbelief. Folks, when we present Christ. We present the greater land. We we present the greater promise, the greater rest, the greater salvation that all of this is pointing to, and they will not have him. God loathes them. God is angry with them 
because he has set out so many marvelous things. He has done so many marvelous deeds. Look at, they did not know my ways, right? For 40 years they saw my works, and God has furnished greater works in Christ. He has given man greater evidences, greater reasons to believe. He has demonstrated greater things through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, coming to die on a tree, rising again triumphantly. And man, when he comes and he looks at that work, only to turn away and to go back to Egypt, God loathes them. It results in the wrath of God. I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. This is what this church is being tempted to do. To leave the great marvelous things that they have seen and known in Jesus Christ. Because there's, there's, they're no different. Why, why is Israel's history so relevant to you and I? Because we're no different from them. We're no different. We have the same sin nature. We're capable of the same apostasies. We are capable of, of, of provoking him, of putting him to the test. We are capable of, of provoking his wrath, just like they were. That's why all of this remains so relevant. And this is where a little bit of the context of the book of Hebrews helps. You understand that when the children of Israel were angry, or they, they complained God, that they were facing trial, danger, dangers. Who's going to provide us water? Who's going to provide us food? Who's going to provide us safety from our enemies, right? Well, this generation of Hebrews is in the same boat. Turn with me to Hebrews 10 just to see this. Difficult for us to understand at times because we're not here. We're not in a situation where we are suffering for the gospel, where we are being imprisoned for the gospel. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Remember the former days after you were enlightened. You endured a great conflict of sufferings. It says, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. So apparently some of them were imprisoned. And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Like I said long ago, imagine that in Frisco, Texas. Christians are having their property seized for the gospel. These nice big houses around here. People's shiny cars are being seized because of the gospel, taken away and incarcerated because of the gospel. Difficult for us to wrap our mind around that. But this is very common in many places of the world today. Very, very common. I just got my audition this, this week of Voice of the Martyrs, where I just page after page of what is happening right here is happening all around the world in Vietnam, in the Philippines, in the Middle East, in China, but it's not happening in Africa, even though it's not happening here, at least not to that degree. And it says, therefore, knowing that you have a better 
that knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, watch this. Therefore, this is the theology of Hebrews right here. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. What is your confidence? By chapter 10, by the time we get to chapter 10, the confidence would have been the Son of God who is enthroned above the universe. By chapter 10, the confidence would be the Son of God who is more faithful than Moses, who's a better leader than Joshua, who provides a better sacrifice than the priesthood, who is a better high priest than Aaron. By the time you get to chapter 10, it is everything that is better about Jesus. Don't throw that away. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Isn't that glorious? The question that we need to ask ourselves today are these three things. Number one, do we, to put ourselves in this today generation, do we see the gravity of what Jesus is saying? Or put another way, do we hear the gravity of what God is speaking through Jesus Christ? Is the gospel wonderful to you? Is the, is the gospel just is the gospel everything to you? Do you have a gospel-centered life? Is the gospel just represent to you just God's mystery, His purposes, what He has done? Is it glorious to you? Number two, do we fear the consequences of unbelief? In other words, are we going to look at the failure of Israel like the generation of Hebrews and fear and fear, or to use the language of Hebrews, take care, brethren, right? That's a call to fear, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart falling away from the living God. Do we fear the consequences of unbelief? And number three, do we hope that the cross alone can provide us lasting rest? In other words, this is a gospel way of saying, do we believe in the promises of God? Remember Psalm 78, what, what the author said there? It says that God was angry with them, that the wrath of God came, the anger of the Lord was mounted against Israel. Why? Because they did not believe in God and they did not trust in his salvation. And so do we trust in his salvation what he has provided us through Jesus Christ. These are the practical application questions that we need to ask of ourselves. This is what Israel failed to see. They did not see in the wilderness generation the gospel promises that was being afforded to them. But we have greater promises. We have greater light. We have greater truth being disclosed to us, at least in greater degree, we have a greater perspective than they did. So, brothers and sisters, I end with verse 12 and with verse 13. Number one, verse 12, because of the admonition. Verse 13, because of the practicality of this for you and for me. Listen to what it says. Take care, brethren, that there... Be not in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that you fall away from the living God. That's what's at stake 
with the gospel. But encourage one another day after day. In other words, that's a way of saying encourage each other every day. Every day. Day after day. Regularly. Routinely. As long as it is still called today. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In one sense, every one of us, we stand as a microcosm of Israel. How Israel was tempted on a national scale, you and I face the same temptation on an individual scale. Every day we have a wilderness temptation experience. Our life is constantly bombarded by suggestions that are meant to cause us to loosen our grip on our confidence, loosen our grip on our confession, loosen our grip on our hope firm to the end. And so my encouragement to us is don't loosen your grip. Tighten your grip. You see how practical it was? Get with a brother that will encourage you so that you will not fall away. (laughs) It's that simple. Get with others. So the local church plays a massive role in that, and you better believe we're going to look at that, Lord willing, next week. 